This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. You know, it always makes me laugh when I look at a lot of the uh, CBDC initiatives, whether it's digital dollar, whether it's the Bank of England, and they, they they're a big topic of conversation in a crypto circles globally. But I would argue that actually, what's really even more exciting is what's happening in Asia. Headlines are reality. Hype isn't value. And Libra isn't the center of the digital currency universe. It's actually in Asia. From China to Singapore to Japan and even Cambodia, Asian central banks have already launched multiple central bank digital currencies, both wholesale and retail, to revolutionize the way we hold and use our money. Their aims are to tackle corruption, challenge the banking status quo, and reframe the way global trade flows. At the heart of it is China's Digital Currency Electronic Payment, or DCEP, program, and it's setting the pace by which all other programs are measured. This week, we'll be discussing the latest digital currency developments from around Asia. Welcome to The Money Pot, our podcast at Money 2020. I'm Sanjeev Kalita, Editor-in-Chief of Money 2020, and joining me on this podcast is Will Haskins, Asia Content Director for Money 2020. It's great to have the chat with you, Sanjeev, because the topic of central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, is fascinating, both for the pace at which it has accelerated in the last year, and also for the potential impact it can have in Asia and around the world. I totally agree with you, Will. Having discussed CBDCs in our recent episode with Jesse McWaters, I'm really eager to dive into the work already in progress in Asia. To help us understand this more, we spoke to Henry Arslanian, who, in addition to his day job as the PwC Fintech and Crypto Leader for Asia, is also Chair of the Fintech Association of Hong Kong and an Adjunct Associate Professor at the University of Hong Kong. When we spoke to Henry, it was clear that he believes in Asia we are witnessing an historic moment in the future of money. I think we're very privileged uh, to be probably the generation who's seeing really this new kind of money appear, uh, you know, not only the, 10 years ago with the creation of Bitcoin, but also now with the conversation around CBDCs. I think that we're very privileged of actually seeing that unfold, uh, you know, in front of our eyes. I really believe for anyone involved today in the field of digital assets or crypto, Asia is where the action is taking place right now. And a great example of this is also in the field of CBDCs. The focus of our conversation was on the efforts by Asian central banks to develop their own CBDCs in response to the unique challenges and opportunities they see. But Henry was clear that the catalyst for the pace of acceleration we've seen was Facebook's Libra announcement. And the biggest catalyst here was without any doubt Libra. I genuinely believe that if Libra didn't happen in June 2019, uh, we would not be ever, we're not even be having this podcast right now. Uh, and I always half jokingly say that anyone who's interested in this topic, we should all send a bouquet of flowers or a you know a little bottle of champagne as a thank you to Mark Zuckerberg uh, for having pushed this topic and actually for bringing Libra uh, forward as a conversation, because uh, it really put this topic on top of the agenda of not only central banks and policymakers but the broader community, and that's very very exciting. Asia has led the way in mobile payments and the acceptance by average consumers of handling financial transactions via digital means. However, many Asian central banks are trying to drive this work further through the development of digital currencies. What excites me about this, Sanjeev, is how far they've already gotten. 
Many of Asia's economies are driven by foreign trade, so thus far, a lot of the work has focused on wholesale CBDCs, which enable payments between central banks and their members, and of course, other central banks. But now, we're seeing retail CBDCs emerging as well. Well, let's start with wholesale CBDC. Uh, Asia was really, uh, I would argue, in many regards, uh, very advanced when it comes to wholesale CBDC. I mean, and a couple of examples, uh, Singapore, uh, they, they launched a couple of years ago Project Ubin, which was, I think, very interesting. They actually just released the results of the Phase 5 of Project Ubin, which is more on, on payments, but again, shows a, shows a lot of interesting things when it comes to the wholesale uh, space. Uh, Japan was very involved in this uh, about uh, two years ago or so. They did a great project uh, with the European Central Bank called the Project Stella. Uh, but I would say probably the most uh, on the wholesale CBD side, the the kind of the the projects, the developments that I, I'm seeing that I'm very excited about is that what's happening right now between in Hong Kong and Thailand. So in Hong Kong, there was a project called Line Rock, and there was in Thailand, there was one uh, called Itonon. And actually, I would argue that when it comes to wholesale CBDC, uh, what we are seeing right now, uh, the, the collaboration between Hong Kong and Thailand, is probably what is some of the most advanced in the world right now. Retail CBDCs, which offer individuals an opportunity to use central bank-backed digital currency for everyday transactions, are less well-developed in Asia outside of a few cases, as Henry explains. For example, Cambodia. Uh, another great piece of reading for your listeners is a project Bakong, B-A-K-O-N-G, uh, which actually is more on a payment side, but really where the National Bank of Cambodia has put together a framework that is really kind of revolutionary as allows uh, individuals, Cambodians, kind of to hold uh, this digital currency uh, in their wallets. For the retail CBDCs, a key focus for Asian central bankers has been financial inclusion. Recent research suggests that as many as 470 million people, or 73% of Southeast Asians, don't have a formal bank account. Along with the pointed need for education around financial literacy, this creates a massive opportunity to give underserved individuals a safe way to build a financial record and credit history, as well as reduce the corruption endemic to many cash-based economies. We should really never forget that you know one of the objectives of every central bank banks, when they look at the CBDC, is to ensure that they're able to facilitate financial inclusion. I mean, I'm, I'm very proud, I would say, over the last couple of years with fintech, uh, we really kind of made huge leaps forward when it comes to, uh, you know, reducing the, those, the number of those who are unbanked or, uh, you know, they're not, uh, not able to access the financial system. And hopefully, this is one of the things that hopefully we'll be able to address, better address, as we move into, into an era of CBDC. This is one of those times where you can really see the impact that fintech can have on improving people's lives. If retail CBDCs can formalize informal jobs in developing countries, it could transform their access to loans, insurance, and even investment, making finance more inclusive while giving us another tool to combat corruption and financial crime clearly shows why CBDCs are an increasing policy priority for central banks across Asia. That's right, Will. And in China, Henry sees the clearest vision and progress of any central bank, both in Asia and, for his money, the rest of the world. From a central bank perspective, what I'm really keeping my eyes on right now is really what's happening in China. I think what's going to happen in China will have a very material impact on other central banks and other policymakers around the world in setting the pace at which this is going to move forward. Libra really catalyzed 
the conversation around CBDCs and brought it to a new level. I really believe that what's going to happen in China will determine the speed at which the top conversation on CBDCs evolves over the coming months. A big reason for China's leading position is that they have been working on CBDCs for more than five years in what the startup community would call stealth mode. When I look at globally and the various CBDC initiatives that we are seeing around the world, uh, I would say that China is probably way ahead of everyone else. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Uh, one of them is if they started researching the topic in 2014, uh, and actually when you look at a lot of the central banks, they've been doing research on it generally for the last two, three years, whereas the Chinese have been on it for a very long time. Uh, second, I think we have to also acknowledge the Chinese reality as well. Uh, you know, when we talk about, for example, basic mobile payments, uh, China is again way ahead of the curve. The Chinese showed with digital payments the scale they can reach when they move quickly and decisively. Just look at Ant's IPO and its $200 billion valuation. And while most central banks are still in the white paper stage, China's PBOC is already testing their CBDC in the four cities of Shenzhen, Chengdu, Suzhou, and Chang'an. You're using the existing infrastructure. So technically, in theory, a central bank could issue its own central bank digital currency, uh, allow people uh, to set up an account directly with the central bank. Uh, but for various practical reasons, uh, a lot of central banks are not very keen on doing this. And this is why the methodology that the uh, PBOC has taken, and this has been quite public in their various announcements, uh, is via this kind of two-tier system. The benefits for this is actually uh, the central bank uh, the, there's a big role to play, again, for the existing players, whether they're uh, traditional banks or the large technology firms. Uh, but also, kind of, it doesn't disintermediate a lot uh, the, the existing the status quo, if you want. So we're able to take, uh, slowly, slowly take advantage of some of the benefits of CBDC, uh, but without the kind of the, the downside, which is, you know, the risk of a bank run or the disintermediation of banks. And uh, I think it's quite exciting because it's for the first time we are seeing a G20 country really test a pilot a CBDC, uh, not only uh, in theoretical or a close context, but at pretty much at, at relatively scale. And I think that's very, very exciting. A key policy goal for the People's Bank of China is traceability and the boost that that will give efforts to tackle financial crime. Uh, one of the big benefits of CBDC is actually allows you a bit more traceability. You know, for example, I always say that I, I generally believe that CBDCs will give us for the first time in a very long time a fighting chance against corruption. Because obviously today, uh, frankly, if you're a drug dealer or you're, you're laundering money or you want to corrupt somebody, cash is still the best way because it's not traceable. However, when we evolve to, to a CBDC, uh, really it'll give us a fighting chance against it. I saw a stat from Reuters saying financial crimes cost Asian companies $166 billion a year. This is such a massive issue across Asia, and there are specific issues to tackle there that are not the same in the West. Building a CBDC with zero downtime in places without reliable internet connectivity is a major challenge. Major Southeast Asian economies such as Indonesia, Thailand, Myanmar, and Vietnam all have internet penetration below 60%. And in India, that figures around 50%. I think it's going to be very interesting to see um, how central banks in Asia are going to be dealing with this uh, issue. Because it's a, it's a real problem, right? At the end of the day, the last thing you want is that uh, to, to not be able to kind of... Um, to, to kind of uh, enable people just because they don't have the connectivity, right? Uh, and this is, by the way, not only Asian problem, but we've seen something, you know, even in, in the West as well. The most recent example was with, in the U.S. 
where when the uh, IRS was trying to send over 100 million checks uh, to people uh, because you know because they were not connected to the either they were, they were unbanked or they were underbanked and we still have to use the old school way of sending uh, checks which is frankly a bit you know uh, it's not ideal in 2020 he is dead right that it isn't only an asian concern us adoption rates are at 80% his example of the U.S. relying on checks, which is outdated everywhere else, is a great example of the effects of that. Another issue Henry spoke about is the desire for central banks to counter the dollarization of their economies. In Cambodia, if you look at their um, Project Bacon, Bacon, which is the, 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 the their initiative that I was just mentioning a couple minutes earlier, uh, in there, uh, they actually mentioned that they're hoping that but in enabling this, making it easier for people to hold a local currency in a CBDC format or you know digital format, um, it may uh, force or encourage people not to use U.S. dollars. Uh, you know, in many emerging markets, we have a phenomenon of dollarization, uh, and that's the problem actually. The Cambodian Central Bank mentions in their in their white paper as well, and I think this is a bigger issue for a lot of um, emerging economies. And the good example of this was Libra. Uh, for example, Libra, if you look at the latest, the 2.0 uh, Libra Association document, uh, they mention explicitly that if there is a risk, and I think we have to acknowledge that, that if it becomes very easy for people with very basic internet, you know, to be able to conduct, uh, uh, you know, cross-border payments using, uh, let's say, Libra stablecoin, whether it's Libra USD, Libra GBP, Libra SGD, or whatever, uh, there's a risk that actually people may rather use that than use their home national currencies. And that is actually a big problem. But actually, this is one of the reasons that the Libra Association explicitly uh, is uh, mentions that they're very open to have conversations with any central bank who wants to discuss this topic and see whether they can help uh, to kind of uh, address this issue. Dollarization is such a serious problem because it can devalue the local currency, which really hits the average worker's wages. But bigger still is the opportunity to use CBDCs to tackle cross-border payments. Uh, as you know today, the co average cost of a cross-border payment is around 7%. In many emerging markets, it's double-digit. And I think the recent developments with COVID-19, where there's a lot of these migrants who have lost their jobs, a lot of them are making less money, uh, and actually puts a bigger even focus now on avoiding these fees on a cross-border basis. So building the frameworks for Asian CBDCs will help Asian central banks tackle a number of pressing issues, financial crime, dollarization, the cost of remittances, but there are big hurdles to clear along the way. First among them but what actually, is What actually happens, I think the whole trust journey is going to be very interesting, not only when it comes to cryptocurrencies, but also when it comes to CBDCs. Um, I would say that I, I really expect it to come into phases. For example, right now, for the next 12 to 24 months, I really expect to see more trust within uh, the broader crypto asset space for one very simple reason, increased regulations. Uh, today, if you look at uh, regulators globally, uh, only 5% of regulators do not have somebody working on crypto. Only 5%. This is a massive advancement, you know, improvement from about 12 to 18 months ago. Uh, and now, actually, the, the fact that we have regulated exchanges, regulated wallets, regulated platforms provides trust to a lot of people. So that's the most immediate, I think, uh, uh, issue that we're solving. And while increased regulation may help build trust for CBDCs and crypto assets more generally, another key concern for CBDCs is linked to the benefit they give in terms of fighting corruption. For anybody trying to commit financial crime, cash is your go-to option. But at the same time, it's also the most private means of payment. 
over the last couple of years, despite all of the efforts that we are doing to combat money laundering globally, according to the uh, the World Bank, we're still able to capture less than one to two percent of laundered money. So it's not working very well. Uh, so what it really brings in is okay, yes, CBDCs um, from a technological perspective and from a design perspective could allow us to actually be able to trace everything, uh, you know, and actually get rid of money laundering, corruption, and so on and so forth, at least when it comes to the, the use of, by, by the means of, of a CBDC or this, whatever uh, money we're using. However, the privacy debate is a good one. And I think this is why a number of actually central banks in their discussion, they've acknowledged that we still need to allow people to hold central bank money in a private way. What's interesting about this is how the desired level of privacy differs between different societies. For many Chinese, for example, the privacy crime debate is really moot. But if you expect a digital currency to be accepted in other societies, or as the Chinese do, you expect foreigners to use it domestically in China, then you've got to think twice about how you balance this. I definitely agree, Will. And this is fundamentally where the digital currency world is going to have to work better together in the future. The crypto community has done a huge amount of work focused on privacy as a key feature. But central banks who are working on this now are more focused on traceability. Fortunately, there are some models already in place that can help to guide how central bankers can offer individuals a level of privacy while still complying with anti-money laundering best practices. I think the methodology that we'll see eventually is that in most countries where privacy is a concern, I think you can see CBDC but you can have under a certain threshold, uh, you know, transactions that are can happen at a token-based uh, methodology, but that, that actually uh, are are anonymous or actually are, are not not traceable to the extent that bigger transactions are. And actually, there's a lot of already um, regulatory frameworks to that effect right today. A number of countries, a number of regions have certain AML guidelines that go over a certain monetary threshold. Uh, we've seen that most recently with FATF as well when it comes to the uh, beneficiary and receiver information and so on and so forth. So I think the model that we'll see eventually develop is one where you have kind of a token-based and account-based uh, approach, both approach come together, which you think about it is very similar to money today. Today, if you have money, you can have money at a bank, which is account-based, but you can also have a token-based, value-based, which is the $10 bill in your wallet. So I think we're going to have, have an approach that includes both. That would allow us not only to combat uh, money laundering and corruption, but both at the same time enable financial inclusion and kind of day-to-day uh, -day payments, which is something that is very important for uh, policymakers and central banks alike. While individuals may have concerns about privacy and trust, Banks may view CBDCs with some suspicion. If a central bank is particularly successful in gaining adoption for a CBDC, there's a real risk that banks may be cut out as consumers take direct receipt of central bank digital money. A lot of the banks have been paying a lot of attention to this. As you know, one of the um, a consequence of a, of a widespread usage of CBDC is that there's a couple of consequences. One of them is actually it may encourage a bank run. So for example, today, if let's say I, I do not trust the banking system at all anymore, I can go to my ATM and I can withdraw as much money as I want. But there's obviously, uh, first of all, there's a physical limitation of how much money I can, I can withdraw from ATM. And then there's obviously a lot of practical difficulties like where do you store it, how do you keep it, and how to make it safe as well. Um, the, the, the difference with a CBDC is technically I'm able to withdraw this amount in a second. I can hold a, 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 an, an infinite amount on my, on my wallet, on my digital wallet. So that, that encourages the risk of bank runs. And also, if less people 
are keeping their money at a traditional bank. Uh, what happens with banks, as you know, all, all your listeners know, when you leave deposit money at a bank, the bank uses that money and does other stuff with it. They lend, they lend it out or they do other stuff with it. And actually what happens is that the bank needs, they cannot, if there's less money being deposited, it increases their cost of funding because they need to go borrow that money on the wholesale market uh, you know, uh, at a certain rate. So this, this can have, potentially have an impact not only on the PL of banks, but also really there's a very practical risk of being disintermediated. How well central banks address this worry comes down to the safeguards they put around how people can use their CBDCs. Uh, one of them that has been discussed is putting limits, for example. Another central bank in Europe that I find is not getting as much attention as it should is the Netherlands. The Netherlands, I think, has a great proposition for a CBDC where they actually want to put a limit to how much people can hold in CBDC. And it's actually what they say is about, I think it's between four to 7,000 euros, which is the amount of money they believe the average European or Dutch person will use for day-to-day transactions for a certain amount of time. And also there's a limit to, it's only basically their CBDC uh, is replacing the usage of traditional uh, cash. Only time will tell how effectively digital currencies, either from central banks or the private sector, will meet these challenges. However, Henry believes we are on the right track for CBDC development. There's a lot of enthusiasm around CBDCs, but I actually think that we're still a couple years away from being able to see this more mainstream. I think we'll see a lot more research, we'll see a lot of POCs, a lot of pilots, a lot of experimentation. However, I think we're still a bit, a couple of years away from being seen, like being used in, in parallel to the existing monetary system. And if you're interested to learn more about what's happening in the Asian CBDC space, Henry suggested some summer reading. And maybe if there's one tip I would give to your listeners for the summer, if you're looking for some summer reading, I highly recommend, maybe you don't really focus on reading novels or other stuff like that, but really actually read some of these white papers, CBDC white papers that have come up. I believe they're very, very, there's a lot of exciting content in there. And actually, some of the uh, the ideas that are being brought forward, uh, not only what's, ha- what's being brought forward with the digital dollar in the U.S., the Bank of England paper, the one from the Netherlands Central Bank, uh, but also what we are seeing in Asia with the Hong Kong, Thailand uh, project, Line Rock, Itunon, to some of the recent other papers from some of the policymakers. The recent one from the IMF is excellent. The uh, the one on stablecoins from the FSB, uh, some of the recent uh, uh, conclusions from the, F- from the FATF, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of documentation out there that I think is, is very exciting reading for any one of your listeners who's interested on this topic. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to need a longer summer holiday if I'm going to get through that whole list. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about you, Sanjeev. I think I need, I, I'm not sure if I have enough annual leave left. I, I, I think that's a good reason to ask for some more leave. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of The Money Pot. We'll be back next week with another episode. I want to say thank you to our fantastic guest this week, Henry Arslanian from PwC. Our sincerest thanks, especially as Henry's just recently recovered from COVID-19. And we want to thank our producers, Rachel Morrissey and Roland Boddenham. Digital currency will be a major topic at this year's Money 2020 Europe. We'll spend an entire afternoon delving deeper into this topic and exploring the possibilities involved with creating the future of money as we know it. Thank you for joining us. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Be sure to write us with suggestions at podcast at money2020.com. Also, we hope to see you at Money 2020 in Amsterdam, September 22nd to 24th, 
and again in Las Vegas, October 25th through 28th. Don't forget, submissions for Rise Up and Do Better are open now. Thank you, and take care out there. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.